what we want to talk about today, we're with Sentox. We are addressing each sector of the energy industry, and I volunteered to do oil and gas because I love oil and gas, and I work in it, and I've worked in it my entire life, and I'm happy to talk to it. So I'm, I'm going to hit some macro points about the industry now and how it's evolved over time, and then some micro um, economic points, and then provide a couple of recommendations for uh, if you think we should drill more or if, if you want to end climate change. And then we can open it up kind of, kind of to the room and folks can ask questions and we can just have a dialogue. So um, I'll say it, it feels rare to me that you'll hear rhetoric other than from Alex Epstein or in, the, in a press release from a public oil and gas company that uh, is super pro oil and gas. But where, where you do see the rhetoric being very pro oil and gas is in how people spend their money um, and how and how much it's consumed. Um so we, uh, in 2020, um, U.S. energy co- consumption uh, was still 69% oil and gas, so 35% petroleum and 34% natural gas, with kind of the other energy mix making up the rest of that. Coal was still 10% of the energy mix um, at that time, which uh, maybe this is news to some, maybe it's not news to others, but uh, the point here is we burn a lot of oil and gas. Um, and I'd hoped to be able to share my screen uh, to share a chart with you guys, but I'll have to describe it otherwise because uh, Teams is not working uh, on my side. So um, that's energy consumption. So still U.S. energy consumption, 35% oil, 34% natural gas in 2020. Um, how has that changed over time and how have we produced more over time? Have we produced more over time? So if you look at U.S. energy production by major source, natural gas we produced in t- 2008, uh, 20 quadrillion BTUs. Um, Quadrillion BTUs is kind of a nefarious unit, So, uh, but it's a unit of energy, right? Um, And we produce 10.6 quadrillion BTUs of crude oil. Um, And renewables, we only did 7.2 quadrillion BTUs. Um, In 2019, so 11 years later, which I picked 2019 instead of 2020 or 2021 because pulled the data from EIA, and it's kind of the best, most recent data uh, that we have available and is likely representative of what we'll see reported in 2021 and 2022. Renewables had grown uh, 60% to 11.5 quadrillion BTUs, but natural gas and crude oil had also grown considerably um, in the U.S. as production, uh, even more than renewables had grown. So, um Natural gas grew from 20 to over 35 quadrillion BTUs, a 70% increase, and oil grew from 10.6 to over 25 quadrillion BTUs, or 140% increase. If you've been paying attention at all to the world in the past decade, uh, that's been obvious, right? And it's come from the shale revolution. I'm likely not telling you anything that you don't know, but it is really tremendous to think about that we uh, more than doubled our oil production in the U.S., in the past 11 years um, and almost doubled our natural gas production in the U.S. So that's great. Does it, does it matter how much oil is left? Um, well, in the Delaware Basin, which is the western part of the Permian, I saw a report just earlier this week that showed there's about 100,000 wells left to be drilled in the Delaware Basin, and they're all economic above $55 oil. Um, it's one of the most prolific basins in the world. Uh, there's oil everywhere throughout it, um, and it's just the western half of the Permian Basin just the uh, just one piece, which is just one piece in the U.S. Um, And if prices go up, we're likely to develop even more. Um, But 100,000 wells, that sounds like a lot, but 
realistically how much oil is actually there. Um, and because I'm familiar with the basin, doing a little bit of calculus, uh, you can reasonably say there's probably 43 to 86 billion barrels of oil there remaining in the Delaware Basin, which sounds like a lot until you look at annual production and consumption um, globally and in the U.S., and it's really not that much. So that volume of oil is realistically like one to two years of global consumption um, and about 12 years of U.S. consumption. So think about this macroeconomic trend of we're producing a ton more oil. Shale was uh, a tremendous advancement in how we develop oil and gas in the world. And we think that there's a lot of it because there was a glut in the past four years. But now we're seeing another major spike um, in price because there's there's a shortage. And um, I would posit that there's likely to continue to be additional shortages uh, ad nauseum moving forward, meaning it's a volatile cyclical industry. Um, but particularly with oil, we're likely to continue to see shortages. Um, gas is kind of a little different. So it's astronomically expensive, but it's also very inelastic, or it's expensive now. Um, the demand in the U.S. at least is inelastic, meaning we burn about the same amount of gas at about the same time of year all the time in the U.S. Um, and it doesn't really scale up or down. Um, the estimates that I've seen for how much gas we have remaining are upwards of 50 to 100 years left in the U.S. just to power our current demand, which is a ton. It's a ton of gas, and it's, it's likely not going anywhere. So it's kind of a macro overview, zooming in a little bit on what's happening right now in the market. Uh, the microeconomics, everyone says it. It's in all throughout the news. Supply chain is a huge problem. Steel prices have been tuppled over the last year. Um, profit prices have quadrupled. There's later labor shortages everywhere. Uh, the cost to hire a drilling rig is almost three times what it was two years ago. There's trucking shortages. Um, and so there's this complete 180-degree shift in what was a buyer's market from 2014 through about 2021 and is now really a seller's market. Um, and so what effect does that have on the industry as a whole? Uh, the industry's been slow to restart because um, we're leery of price rebound being temporary and losing much money because we lost a ton of money uh, previously over the past decade. Um, some estimates say that the shale revolution lost or destroyed about $300 billion of capital, which is kind of terrifying to think about. Think about burning or lighting on fire, literally with no value add, $300 billion. It's hard to fathom. Um, so the, the whiplash is substantial, but if you're curious on when there might be in effect, and when we might see prices drop, something that I've used as a good proxy um, to look at is this global imbalance of supply and demand. So how much is the world burning versus consuming for both both oil and gas? Um, and then also looking at U.S. rig count, because the U.S. is really the biggest lever that the world has to shift um, how much we're producing the fastest, other than OPEC releasing additional barrels. But um if you go back and look at the history, I, I don't think that has as much of an effect as the U.S. has had uh, in the past decade with really bringing on more oil and gas wells. Um, so what? This, this is probably seems obvious to many, um, but uh, there appears to still be a tremendous thirst and hunger for oil and gas in the world. Um, we're burning a lot of it. I would say that that's true because it is so useful. So there's two things that I'll leave or two Priorities that'll say if this is your motive, then here's my recommendation about the direction to move. Um, so if your priority is to have cheap, reliable, affordable um, energy for America and the world, and you want it now, uh, then do everything you can in your power politically 
uh, in the professional world to allow the world to drill more. Um, you know, there's a huge rhetoric game happening right now in the Biden administration that is problematic for the industry. There's several lawsuits. Um, and I can say that being directly exposed, uh, you know, our company has federal leases and is ex- directly exposed to some of those um, challenges that are, are showing up. Um, and it's prohibiting our development. We can't drill all the wells that we want to drill because of the regulatory environment. So push people to drill more. Uh, second is build pipelines and LNG terminals all across the East Coast. Uh, this is relatively not, not talked about a lot, I think, but would be hugely valuable. Um, meaning if we could export the Marcellus shale to places that need it the most and minimize the transportation cost. Um, right now, most of the Marcellus goes down to the Gulf and we export it from the Gulf, um, which is bizarre. And none of it goes to New England, which is also bizarre when New England is right there. Um, it's really a perception problem um, and, and inability to get pipelines built in the area. Um, and third recommendation would be export our shale Revolution technology globally. You know, the technology that we've developed in the U.S. has been amazing, and uh, there's opportunity all across the world to use it and exploit plays there. Um, if your goal is to end climate change, obviously we're not going to do that while still lighting oil and gas on fire. Uh, I think it's funny the natural gas industry uh, claims that you know, they're reducing emissions more than any other technology by uh, switching from coal to natural gas, but it's really just kicking the can down the road um, I think that rhetoric is going to wear off in the coming decades. Um, so my recommendations really, if you want to end climate change, are threefold, which is um, invest heavily in nuclear power plants, nuclear technologies, and request that oil and gas companies invest in them. So you can imagine a world where you know there's a renewable energy credit um, instrument that could be traded, um, or like a renewable energy credit, but is clean energy and is hyper-valuable if um, it's nuclear energy that incentivizes oil and gas companies to exploit that. Um, the thought there is moving from one of the most energy-dense fuels to the most energy-dense fuel. Um, number two would be support oil and gas companies to research carbon capture projects um, like Carbon Engineering and Carbon America are doing. So oil and gas companies understand how to process CO2. They know how to treat it. They know how to sequester it. Um, it just takes more energy than it's worth, meaning if you're trying to capture CO2 from the air and you're producing and you're making your money off things that ultimately light on fire and produce CO2, then you're always going to have a net negative um, balance sheet. There's, there's, that's, a, that's a losing proposition. So you also need an energy source that can s- capture the carbon, sequester it, process it, um, that is more energy, energy dense than oil and gas. Um, and then demand utilities to price electricity generation fairly. I, I think this is a big thing that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, the natural gas industry is has been super profitable from being backups to renewables um, and getting to sell energy in deregulated markets um, that have been, um, yeah, when energy prices are high. Uh, and I, I think there we could think critically about how to change the approach and how we price energy in or electricity, at least in markets. So with that, I'll pause and open it up to the room and uh, have open dialogue. See if you guys agree, disagree. All right. Let's give a little golf clap for Mark. Yeah. Hey, lots of really good insights. Um, if you all don't mind, I'll, I'll kind of open with a question or two, but Mark covered a lot of really good topics. 
kind of the current state of energy production um, and, and outlook uh, on you know what's going to the next fifty to hundred years might look like. And I think we're all thinking that, right? We're all in the industry, we're all wondering where the industry is going to go, and we're all doing whatever it is that we're doing because we think that's a really good opportunity within the industry. And Mark brings up some good points. So ultimately, Mark, um, if you could just you what what do you think? The uh, the shale revolution that they refer to, like what was kind of the ripple effect of the shale revolution on the rest of the the energy industry? You know, how did it how did it drive other pieces of the industry, and in, in what direction? Absolutely. So I, the shale revolution did a couple things that were very impactful and weren't obvious to a lot of people, I think, um, as they were happening. So in particular, in the 2000s, from 2002 to 2010, there was a huge startup culture uh, doing what was called the, the nuclear renaissance, or trying to start more nuclear power plants. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission had 31 new applications for new nuclear power plants to be built um, in the 20-teens, which was huge because the U.S. didn't have natural gas. We seemed to be running out of natural gas. We seemed to be running out of oil, um, and we needed more energy security. And so all of those projects best solution available to a lot of people that were involved in the space seemed to be building more nuclear power plants. By 2011 to 2015, uh, most of those projects had died because gas prices had fallen from $8 in MBTU to $2 in MBTU um, through the advent of the Barnett Shell and the Marcellus. Um, so that, and a lot of people tout the death of the nuclear renaissance um, or attribute it to Fukushima, which when you look back at the data, that, that really doesn't make sense and is just kind of not true. Um, it was an economic failure of the nuclear industry to build nuclear power plants cheap enough and cheaper than uh, you could build gas-fired power plants. Um, so that was huge. Um, the U.S. producing more oil and surpassing the peak, its peak oil. Right? Peak oil was predicted in the U.S. in the mid-1970s, and we, we thought it was, it was at about 10 million barrels a day, and then it had been in decline until the 20-teens. Think about that. Think about growing up and people saying, peak oil, we're going to run out of oil. And then in the 20-teens, by 2019, we were up to 13 million barrels a day. So we not only met the max that we'd produced in 1970s, but passed it, which is phenomenal. And the effect that that had on the global markets was, was huge, especially when the imbalance globally was essentially plus or minus one to two million barrels a day um, supply consumption difference. Um, and, you know, the, the U.S. totally threw that off. So, you know, if, if you start suddenly producing six million barrels a day or um, three to four times more than uh, the, the difference in the imbalance, um, price inevitably had to crash, which then kind of resulted in 2020 with OPEC um snapping their fingers and trying to flood the market and make a bunch of shale producers go out of business. Um, the other interesting thing that watched happen over the decade was the advent of renewables and people trying to build more and more renewable projects and the impact that cheap natural gas had on those projects, meaning utilities were willing to build renewable projects because they could be backed up by reliable, deployable natural gas, and it was cheap. And so it made sense economically, and there were a bunch of subsidies and mandates. Um, but had natural gas not been cheap, then the system effects of renewables, when you have to back them up with natural gas, would have been even more expensive. And I think there's a lot of examples across the world that kind of demonstrate that. 
Okay. And I think public perception has a lot to do with it as well. Like, so Fukushima is really bad public perception. Renewables, really good public perception. So that kind of shifted what projects got adopted. Let's throw it out there. Ryan, you're in the, the business of flare gas. What do you think? What question might you have for Mark? I was curious. I don't know if you have any info on this, Mark, but do you have anything that shows, how, I guess, how much oil and gas is needed to, for instance, uh, create or produce a renewable project? Uh, I don't have that value offhand. Um, but I think what you're trying to get at is how much energy goes into a renewable project to actually produce the materials and mine and transport um, and, and get them to location. It's interesting. Vesta's website is one of the largest, you know, Vesta's is one of the largest wind developers in the world. And they tout um, a five or six um, energy or five X or six X energy return on energy invested um, value for their turbines. Meaning they think that um, if you put a dollar in or a kilowatt hour in to build a turbine, you'll get five or six dollars or kilowatt hours back. Um, that is true for some of their supply chains, um, but if you expand it to a system cost where you have to have backup power um, for when, when those projects are not online, then it's it, it immediately or quickly falls apart. The math very quickly falls apart. Um, when we started my current company, Franklin Mountain Energy, um, I was continuously looking at, you know, we, we're going to need a power grid. We're going to need a system. It, we're in southeast New Mexico. There's a bunch of solar farms all over the place. Can we build our own solar farm and build a substation and put in energy storage? And so I had the freedom to go out and look at a bunch of the technologies and build spreadsheets to try and make it work. Um, at the end of the day, the conclusion that I came to was it was a bad investment for us. Um, and why, why do I say that? Um, you know, we could spend $10 million to go build a 10 megawatt solar project and have power half the time. Um, or we could spend, and most of those solar projects, if you're selling all of your capacity into the grid at an advantaged rate, um, they expect to pay out in 20 years, right? And Jake can probably cite some of the math on this, but 10 to 20 years, um, at best, kind of a 6% rate of return versus we could spend 10 million bucks on an oil well and see over 100% rate of return and pay out in 5 to 12 months. So if you're trying to maximize um, the value of an asset, which is synonymous with maximizing kind of energy return on energy invested, um, or they should correlate very closely, then yeah, oil and gas wells are tremendously better, typically. I had another, so this is something we run into with, with Greenflare, had been running into recently, and a lot of people view like the Bitcoin network and they say, oh, it's a waste of electricity. And usually our response or my response to that is usually, you know, there's there's a lot of networks out there that eat a lot of a lot more energy. And what do you find useful and what do you not find useful? Is scrolling through your Instagram account useful? Is that like a net, you know, win win for for culture? Because that's a network that probably eats more electricity than the Bitcoin network eats. But people don't like to talk about those networks. So that's like a response that I would have when people say, "Oh, like why are we why are we taking so much electricity to power Bitcoin network?" What do you say to folks when I mean, you know, when your industry or your business gets attacked? I guess I'm saying, what you know, what you're what you're producing and what you're going after is you know a, a total waste. I mean, have you run into that like recently? And what what has been your response? I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
working in the industry, uh, I've been an engineer for nine years and I grew up in an oil and gas family. And almost every dollar I've earned has come from fossil fuels, um, with the exception of a TA position for a sustainable energy class at CU. So I, I've run into that a lot. And a tongue-in-cheek response, which is not tasteful, likely, and, and not tactful, um, is, well, you're still using it, and we're still using it um, ad nauseum. Uh, if, if you feel st- that strongly about it, like, stop using it. And the rebuttals to that argument have been, uh, well, that we have no other choice. Society is addicted to it. If we want to maintain our quality of living, we have to maintain using it. There's kind of a monopoly stronghold. Um, on this technology and this product. And so to, to that, I, I go back to kind of my recommendations of, you know, as a te- technocrat, uh, an engineer, I, any problem can be solved with enough technology. Um, some people feel differently and, and think that we need different ways to solve problems, but I really think we can develop better technologies that produce even more energy, just starting with first principles and fundamental, fundamentals in physics. And I, I think that's a stronger argument that people, you know, come and say this is not valuable and you're not being helpful to, to the world, then there's abundant examples of why it is valuable. Um, but if they prefer to get off oil and gas, then there's a very obvious pivot to something that's even better. To your question or to your point about Bitcoin being a valuable network, I totally agree. I, from what I understand about cryptocurrency and blockchain in general, it's really just a fancy accounting system that allows transparency to anyone that uses that blockchain system. Um, and, you know, likely the crypto market has been a speculative commodity that's been traded. And there's histories littered with examples of um, bubbles and bubbles being burst in commodities markets. Um, but yeah, it, from that perspective it, of it being um, a public ledger, I think it's just as valuable as keeping photos on Instagram. Um, and, you know, there, we can either do that by storing it on servers um, or storing it across computers across the world. So. All right, good questions. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, thanks a lot for kind of sharing some of that info. I'm Barry Cavan with uh, EarthU, and we do continuous methane and BOC monitoring. I guess from, from our perspective, right, you know, one thing I kind of like to talk about is it seems like we have a pretty cool opportunity here uh, in the United States at, at least to, you know, not only produce clean, abundant energy, but have the data that proves that it's clean. So that's kind of where Earthview falls in. I'm, I'm kind of wondering kind of what you see in that space um, as far as emissions, reducing emissions. Um, how do you how do we do it in a way that's transparent and, and kind of universal across, you know, because like the emissions that I see in the Permian are, are way different than what we see in the Marcellus, and it's kind of hard to compare them. But we have to reduce emissions across all the basins. So I'm just kind of curious, any, any you know, I can tell you, so we operate in New Mexico and we have just spent a ton of time and money with lots of, we're a small team and we've spent lots of resources internally um, because New Mexico has come out with some new reporting rules um, that require you to track every molecule of methane and all of your emissions, all of your flared emissions, um, which is good and it sounds simple, but their tracking mechanism um, is defunct, ineffective, wasn't tested well enough, can't be adjusted fast enough, um, and has made it very, very onerous and challenging for reporters to, or for operators to report accurately. Um, 
I totally agree. I've been a huge proponent of vapor recovery units, of leak detection, of advancing technologies for leak detention, detection with different types of cameras, um, of drone monitoring of pipelines and facilities and having permanent cameras and having um, flares and combustors that have complete combustion. I am a huge fan of all of those technologies, and I think every asset across the world should be using them. Because um, remember, if we just use them in the U.S., then other people are not using them, and we only have one atmosphere. Right, so they're venting the emissions, which the atmosphere is very, very efficient at circulating these products all, all across the world and contributing to climate change. Um, so the U.S. can be a leader in that, but the from what I've seen so far and from working with regulators, the the challenge is, and I think the onus is really on industry to help the regulators um, and hold their hand more or less. You know, to be proactive and say, we, this is a solution that works. This is how we should be tracking these things um, and really be involved with the people that are making the rules so that when the rules are made, they make sense. And you don't end up in a reporting nightmare um, circumstance where you're pr- performing a bunch of double work um, or I'll say non-value add paperwork that really isn't solving the problem. And people like yourself and, that have monitoring and, and sell um the service, I think, can be front leaders in that, right? I think that's that's a tremendous opportunity for you guys to interface directly with regulators um, in Colorado and across the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean that's a, you know that's a big challenge for us too. Is it, it, like you know because communicating the the limitations and it, you know kind of the advantages of our of the technology at least that we use, right? You know we get a lot of questions that revolving around the quantification of emissions, which is a tricky science, right? I mean, it's, it, we're limited by physics on how we can quantify using these dispersion models and, you know, trying to communicate that to the industry as well as the regulators has, has been a challenge. It kind of puts the, the technology uh, innovators like Earthy kind of right between the, you know, rock and a hard place because, you know, regulators have different missions than what industry wants to accomplish. So, yeah, trying to kind of just communicate transparently, I think, is really important here. And then just not related to emissions at all, but just kind of since we're talking about the energy transition, you know, as a study geology in school, I've always been into geothermal energy. So I'm wondering, as an oil and gas operator, do you see opportunity in a lot of the technology that we've developed for horizontal drilling and, and you know, hydraulic fracturing? Do you see that going into potential geothermal projects down the down the, the way? Yeah, 100%. So there's several companies that are already doing these things, and one of the first ones that I saw that is doing it successfully, I'm blanking on the name right now, but Jake and I were at a conference last year in November that they presented, and they're using um, the exact design that most horizontal wells use to improve the efficiency and efficacy of a geothermal project. Um, so I, I really love someone's ability, and when you find an innovator that can identify a technology that can be used or a process that can be used in a different application um, and be super valuable. Like, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that with what we've done in oil and gas. And I think geothermal is a tremendous example. And I think nuclear waste or spent nuclear fuel disposal is a great example. Um, So I'll focus on geothermal because that was your question. Uh, I mean, yeah, for those that don't know, if you frack a horizontal well, it often can communicate with other horizontal wells that are close to it. And the thesis now is um, developing additional permeability and increasing surface area 
to push liquid through reservoirs that historically weren't hot enough or didn't have the permeability um, available to get enough heat out of the ground, gas enough to move the turbine and be a viable geothermal project. Um, Because historically, right, you needed two things. You needed a hot, likely igneous intrusion or um, magma source that had intruded and had a really hot reservoir, and you needed great permeability um, to be able to push lots of fluid through the rock. Now, if you increase your surface area, you have more contact time, essentially, right? Heat transfer, you look at anything, any device that um, is effective at heat transfer, it's a bunch of fins lined up, right? Think about a radiator. It's a bunch of thin, thin surfaces. And fracking horizontal wells essentially does the same thing. So it improves the heat transfer to the liquid. Um, So the base temperature or static bottom hole temperature doesn't have to be as hot. Um, in as many places and um, increases the permeability so you can pump more water through it faster. Um, I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for that to open up projects across the world. And I know that there's several companies that are already doing it. Yeah, Mark mentioned this conference we went to, and it is interesting. You talk about peak oil, potentially peak gas, what happens next. But there's this huge opportunity to turn all the existing wells and all the existing horizontal infrastructure into geothermal. There's a huge opportunity to turn all these coal-fired plants that are connected to the grid into little nuclear plants. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what our generation and the next couple generations, you know, end up doing to meet our demand, because demand's not going anywhere, right? Um, That is certainly not. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, right. Uh, how about you guys? And, you know, in, in your industry, in, in design and permitting and, and explosives and pipeline, what opportunities do you guys see? I mean, our, we kind of transcend a lot of different industries. So we obviously we're a technology company and we're providing a service to infrastructure owners. So it's a little different perspective for us. But I guess I'm curious. I hear, you know, I, I attend a lot of conferences uh, all the time in different segments power, water, oil and gas. And the big talk is, is zero carbon emissions, right? Everybody's setting targets out 2040, 2050, whatever it might be. How realistic are, are those targets? Do you think that they're, are we just setting things so that people, you know, are being quiet about it and it sounds like we're working on it? Or do you think that it realistically is something we can achieve? Yeah, uh, I'll be super clear. Um, Without the advent of and uh, mass adoption of more nuclear energy globally, it's a total freaking joke, um, which sounds blunt. And a lot of people in the renewable space uh, would heavily disagree. That's fine. They can disagree. Um, they're frankly just wrong if you look at how much oil and gas and coal we've burned over the past decades and how much we're still burning despite heavy investment in those technologies. Meanwhile, if we did invest heavily into nuclear power, then it could totally transform how we are producing energy. We would get better at it. We would get cheaper at it. And we would be able to do so many incredible things with it, um, namely carbon capture, filtering water to be cleaner, Really, like huge projects that have the opportunity to terraform um, and change the planet in a way that we really can't imagine yet. Um, and that's 
I mean, my, my opinion about that is strictly based on first principles. Um, I just, every time I do the math and I'll frequently sit down and question my assumptions and put together a spreadsheet to try and say, well, wait, does this work? Right. Anytime that I see a claim and I, I can't ever make it work. And so if you guys do find somebody that ha has, or you run across a report or project and want to review it with me, I'm very happy to take a look at those. Um, I think one thing that isn't talked about often enough is the, if you utilize, um, or if you have, have a super cheap energy source, um, then having an ability to make synthetic fuels or, or liquid fuels instead of chasing the battery train for transportation, I think has huge opportunity and is a much better um, play with the amount of infrastructure that we've invested in globally already, meaning we have infrastructure that is designed to transport natural gas and liquid hydrocarbon fuels. And there's been thinking about the trillions of dollars that have gone to all of those pipeline projects, all of the refueling stations, all of the research and development in internal combustion engines, every car that's ever been built. Uh, there's a huge, huge switching cost associated with going to EVs instead of manufacturing developed or manufacturing synthetic fuels out of air and water. So I don't think that gets nearly enough press and likely because in order to do that, you do need an energy source that's more dense than oil and gas and no one actively talks about nuclear. So, and, to, and I mean, I think people like people in this room, people that listen to our podcast, people that have these conversations globally um, can and will get this message out there that there is a solution that, is ready to be adopted globally. And I'm, I'm pretty bullish for the next 10 to 20 years that if more nuclear projects get built all over the world, then there's a real chance that we could hit net zero or even net negative in our lifetime. I was just going to say something about the yeah, electric vehicles and the mind, right all that stuff. It just, it, it just seems to me it's like, it's not a real, it's more flashy. Like, I mean, you see people with like a license plate, it's like, you know, LOL gas, it's like, do you guys understand that you gotta plug your car in, that electricity has to come back? It's like, I, I'm, the more I'm, I realize it, that they actually, that there's not that connection between people buying these cars and the understanding that, hey, just cause you're not combusting at the source of the vehicle does not mean that there's no footprint. And I, I mean, look at these lithium lines. It just, it, it gets me a little heated, so I won't. So I, I think this is a big benefit that is gonna come it, out of it's total green white. It just, it drives me nuts. It's a part of that I deal with a lot in my, in my work is that I do carbon accounting specifically in the um, electric space. And so all these renewable energy credits, if people aren't tying them hourly to how they're consuming energy, or if you're plugging in your EV and not tying that to it. It doesn't count. I will say, though, that there's, um, there's a lot of these EV companies that are essentially investing in ways to um, – track carbon in and out of their batteries. I think they're a long way off of that. Like these charging stations too. And we, we talked to Tesla one time and like even their their thought leadership and well internally, like their thoughts internally are like they still want to buy the cheapest energy that they can, I mean cheapest wrecks they can and not necessarily track carbon in and out of all their cars because they don't have to yet. And so until like there's enough education and like the marketing switches to like actual education versus marketing, still gonna be Kind of yeah, and I think you're right, and and it is kind of a, in my opinion, it comes down to a battle of public perception, because again, it's it's all about marketing right now, and it's about the sexy EV, and I benefit being in the solar industry. I benefited from that public public perception of people want to do solar because 
it has the perception of being cleaner and greener, even though you got to build the solar panels somewhere somehow, and that's not always done in the best way. They're also right? not renewable. I mean, because you have to solar panel. Because our, our units out in the field have solar panels that we have to replace. It's not sure, cool. sure. They have a lifespan. For sure. Yeah, same with wind. So it just, again, I think it is public perception. Because I'm with you. I've heard a million companies say they're going to be net zero by 2050. And it's just greenwashing. It's just something to put out there to make them look good. I think it's kind of 50-50. I hope that some companies do have a will and motivation to invest in some you know renewable projects, if that's what it is, to offset their carbon or look at doing everything they do more efficiently and, and reduce their carbon emissions. You know, there is a good side. There is an upside to that. The downside, the greenwashing, and to Mark's point, just the challenge of, like, I, I don't disagree. Nuclear is an ultimate solution, but, again, it's public perception. So how much do you think, sorry, how much do younger generations, like, how much are they being influenced? Because I know, like, I have kids, and it seems like that's all they want to talk about. Huge. It's part of the I, can, I was in oil and gas for six years, and my kids were still kind of like, why are you in that business? And I obviously educated them on that. See, but, likes. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> it's, again, it's out of your control because it's part of the curriculum now. Yeah. So it is. So, they're teaching them solar is good, and oil and gas is bad, and they're learning that in school. And no matter what you do, you can't, you know, keep them away from that message. And, and in some ways, um, you know, and Mark and I have chatted briefly about this before, the oil and gas industry swung the pendulum the other way. There's a lot of guys in our industry that are like, it doesn't know, climate change isn't real, and you can burn no, all the gas you want, and it's never going to do anything. We, don't admit anything. we can't terraform the planet. Like, well, okay, there's a middle ground between the, like, the, Dad, why do you work in oil and gas? We should drive a Tesla. Yeah. Tesla's powered by coal. And the guys on the other end who are like, you know, I'm going to rip that, uh, you know, uh, particulate filter off my diesel engine so I can roll coal through town. Like, neither of you are right. You're both assholes. The right is in the middle. Yeah. And so, so my, I guess, comment and then question for Mark is, um, you know, that I don't think anyone has been, no group of people has been more damaging to the environment long term than the environmentalists of the 70s because they killed nuke. And by killing nuke, they put us on a path to burning a hundred million barrels a day globally. That is more oil than we should be burning right now. We should not be wasting our precious energy-dense resources on electricity production. It should be saved for transportation, places where the density of our energy matters. Um, and so, you know, I, I look at our industry and go, what? I, I'm with you, Mark. I'm with you. We have to get to nuclear. But... There's so little, it feels so helpless at our level of, like, what can we do? And I, I really think, so I guess my, my, my comment and my question, I think you fixed it from the demand side. We push electrification of the world. I put in heat pumps at my house, so I only burn that gas if it gets below, like, 15 degrees ambient. I'm heating my house with electricity the rest of the time. I, I haven't gotten electric on cars because I don't think the math works out right now that they are actually um, beneficial long-term. Um, but if we could do more to electrify the world, then our electricity demand goes up, and it starts forcing these Tesla drivers to go, what is what is the energy breakdown in Colorado? What is it? Oh, shit. We are burning more hydrocarbons than any other source of electricity generation, and then it forces people to start looking, how do we green the grid? And the only way to green the grid 
reliably is nuclear. And 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 uh, the oh, I mean, if you want to do it with wind and solar, and and hydro is so limited to certain areas. If you want to do it with wind and solar, you have to have cheap um, uh, fluctuating capacity, which is the only one is 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 net gas. So how do we fix the base load demand? How do we get off the hole for our base load demand and it's new? So I guess my question for you is what more can we be doing, guys like you and I, in the dirty oil and gas industry to pressure our peers to care about, hey, look, we're going to be here long after our kids are dead. Oil and gas is still going to be extracted and burned long after our kids are dead. How do we change the perception? How do we how do we work on the the far, you know, roll coal side of our industry to try and get them to understand that we have, we are doing the public service by producing this, but we also have an obligation to be thinking about the long term. So I guess that's kind of my, you know, what, what more? Yeah. Can we- I've got lots of ideas. Um, <laughs> I, exactly what we're doing here, which is hosting conversations with people in a format and forum that gives them the opportunity to express their, their ideas, challenge each other and, um, question what they think is right and good. Um, also public education, uh, is huge. So education, awareness, and then communicating with regulators. And I'll, I'll offer three, um, opportunities to do each of those. So Switch Energy Alliance is a tremendous, tremendously awesome nonprofit that has made several, um, incredible documentaries about energy production across the world. And they offer an opportunity to host movies for free and help you set it up with theaters. So YPE is doing that in Denver uh, in September. We've got that scheduled. Sharing their content, it's all free. Uh, it's available abundantly um, through your social channels is a great path, in my opinion. And then having conversations with people that don't share your same views, but that might be open to having an honest dialogue and conversation about this. Um, because, you know, social media we know is just an echo chamber. And so you actually have to go out and contact the rest of the world, um, likely face to face many times to educate them. Um, second is accounting and accountability. So that's the piece that Ariel touched on. And I think is a huge opportunity for, um, both, both as a business and as the world, as the ESG movement has moved forward, um, calling attention to some of the hypocrisy and greenwashing that exists. And doing it effectively, I think, is something that oil and gas companies can do. And if they assume the rhetoric of, well, we're going to provide a technical solution that will actually work, um, they would very quickly um, triangulate to uh, some of the solutions that I've already suggested. Um, number three is contacting your elected officials, public servants, um, legislators, senators. Uh, I really do think that makes a difference and getting in touch with as many of them as possible. Um, we had a podcast with the deputy director of the Colorado Energy Office. If you guys haven't listened to it, go and listen to it. Most of what they're doing is neato, um, and some of what they're doing I think is bad for the state. Um, but through that format, I had the opportunity to ask them, you know, why isn't Colorado building more nuclear power projects? Um, and the deputy director responded, because the utilities and companies aren't bringing any of them forward to us. Um, okay, so why aren't they bringing any of them forward? Track it one step uphill because uh, nuclear power is too expensive. Why is it too expensive? There's lots of regulations. Are the regulations warranted? 
um, if you continue tracing uphill, not really. There's a ton of regulations in place that are not as necessary um, as the current U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission demands. Um, so why do we have so many regulations? Like there's this perception that nuclear is dangerous and that radiation is much more dangerous than it actually is. Um, and don't get me wrong, radiation is dangerous at high levels. At low levels, not dangerous. Um, and I can talk for hours about that. But it comes down to there's this perception that people don't like it, which is wrong. Um, I, I just saw a study, uh, ANS published about it, American Nuclear Society published about it yesterday, um, that demonstrated that 77% of Americans are pro-nuclear, um, which is up from about 60% from all of the 20-teens, which I think if you ask anybody, is the majority or are the majority of Americans pro-nuclear, uh, most people would say no. And so it's this incorrect perception of public perception that also needs to be fixed. Meaning, you know, hosting campaigns or saying, hey, I'm proud of this. I'm proud to talk about it. I, I can educate myself about it. There's lots of information. Um, I think we should be doing more of it. And it starts with those three things. So. If I could add on the, the elected officials part, um, I think in general, like no matter where you look in the country, at least in the power sector, and, and surely in oil and gas, having grown up in Houston and worked in gas for a little bit, knowing like the dynamics there, no matter where you are in the country, like your elected officials are creating regulation that the market will have to meet in any commodity that you're working with. So like in New York, they're, like any new buildings have to be electrified and they have a, a carbon penalty now. And so they have to fully decarbonize their buildings or they face like a huge financial risk, right? So now everyone's having to learn. So that's the education piece. Like everyone's having to learn how to figure out how to make that work because the people who are setting the laws have decided that. Like conversely in Texas, um, you know, we all know about the freeze that happened the other year and all the different regulatory changes, like all the news around what's going on in ERCOT at all times um, because of that. Well, there's only one single person that's in the power sector in the entire state legislature. So it's like the people who are making the rules in the state of Texas even don't necessarily understand what they're doing. And so getting to know your elected officials, unless you're making the rules and be the source of information for them versus like someone else with their own interests is super important. Absolutely. I'm going to try to get close to wrapping it up with that, but Really great point, and, and Mark, bring, Mark brings up some really good ideas. You know, be an advocate, get involved, come to these type of events, because and, and then take that conversation to the water cooler at work, right? Get people talking and thinking about it. Um, be an advocate for your local elected officials, because they're the ones that make the rules. Um, I want to add to what Mark said about Switch Energy Alliance, make a, a shameless plug. Tentatively, nine uh, September 1st. Uh, which is a Thursday, right before Labor Day weekend. Uh, we have Switch coming out to show their film. We rent it out of theater. It's going to have um, theater snacks and drinks, and, and we'll watch the film, and it's really educational. Uh, Mark really uh, set that up. So that would be another good event to come to and bring people to. You know, we want to get a big turnout. It's a whole theater, so we can fill it up. Um, and then lastly, I would just throw out there, you know, kind of a bold statement, but if you're truly passionate about that, Consider changing jobs. Consider changing industries. Go work for one of those companies or go start one of those companies. Put your 60 hours a week into that uh, if you really, really, really feel confident about doing that. I'm just throwing that out there. But, um, you know, we can only do so much within our given industries, and I think 
having those conversations and leaning on politicians and, you know, driving our companies towards that is, is really important. Um, but obviously there's going to be a lot of companies that come out of this and that are created and grow uh, if this opportunity starts to exist. So I'd encourage you to consider going to work for one of those companies. Put all your time and energy into it if you, if you really feel that passionate about it. Um, so with that, you know, and in respect to everyone's current job, uh, we don't want to keep you too long. Uh, but we really appreciate you guys coming down. Glad this all came together. Mark was very well prepared, I'd say. He had a lot of great stuff to talk about. So let's give it up for Mark one more time. 